What does it mean to be called to ministry? And how should that internal sense of being called by God relate to other factors, like personal gifting or experience or the support of a local church? In our interview today, I'm talking with Bobby Jamison about his own journey to the pastorate and why he thinks the language of calling is actually more harmful than it is helpful when it comes to pastoral ministry. Bobby serves as an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and is the author of The Path to Being a Pastor, A Guide for the Aspiring, from Crossway. Let's get started. Bobby, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Happy to be here. So you currently serve as an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, do you remember when you first realized that you wanted to be a quote-unquote vocational full-time pastor? Sure. Thanks for asking. I don't know about like the first time I seriously thought about it, but certainly there was a serious desire settling in by Christmas time, my sophomore year of college. So I was mm. studying music full-time. I wanted to be a professional musician. I started attending Grace Community Church where John MacArthur's the pastor. And that was like the end of my freshman year. By beginning of my sophomore year, I'm really plugging in. And the way the word was impacting my life, the preaching there, the just compelling example of a deeper kind of Christian faith that I was experiencing. Yeah, I remember, I remember starting to have some really serious thoughts, really serious desires, uh, kind of that first half of my sophomore year. Uh, so then you talk about how you kind of first had this sense that maybe uh, pastoral ministry and, and making even a, a vocation out of that was something that you were interested in, um, kind of came while you were at Grace Community Church in California. What ultimately led you then to pastoring at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., other side of the country? Sure. Well, the first big thing is that I was, um, some friends of mine had been to a weekender out at CHBC, which we still host these long weekends for pastors and others, kind of a long weekend show and tell, observe everything going on at CHBC and a bunch of teaching and time for fellowship. So I'd had friends who'd been to one of those. I'd had friends who knew about the internship that we run at our church and they just recommended it to me. I was already started listening to some of Mark's preaching, Mark Dever, the senior pastor here, uh, I had heard about Mark through his connections with T4G, which was just starting up, that, that John MacArthur was also at. So I started listening to some Nine Marks resources, getting interested in what they were doing, just resonating with, with the kind of biblical vision of church that they were advocating. And uh, this opportunity to train in person, when I heard about it, oh, you sort of hang around with Mark all the time, and you read a bunch of papers, and you sort of hop in and just see everything going on in the church. I thought, oh, that sounds like a, a good way to, to get some ministry experience and learn what it means to be a pastor. So I just applied from California as a college student, uh, came out to a weekender, wound up getting married, and uh, then coming out and that, doing the that internship. Weekend? Not that weekend, sorry. No, no, no. It's a compressed, it's a compressed timeline. Apl- applied for the internship, came to a weekender, sometime later get married, uh, but come out for the internship right after I graduated college. So I came out as an intern in 2008. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think those who are somewhat familiar with Dever and Capitol Hill might be familiar with uh, this, a little bit familiar with this pastoral internship program. It seems like it's something that, that you all are, are pretty well known for now. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. What is that program like? What does it entail? 
Yeah, the goal is to give brothers who aspire to be pastors a biblical vision for the church. How do you see what scripture teaches about the church? What is church membership? How should a church be structured? What what are pastors and elders' job descriptions? Uh, what are we supposed to focus on according to scripture? Uh, how do we practice church discipline? Where do we see church membership in the Bible? Where how Who has authority and how should decision-making in the church work? We believe there are biblical answers to all those questions. Uh, although there's a lot of room for application, uh, a lot of wisdom and discernment that's needed in applying these things to specific situations. So we're trying to force guys in a very repetitive, catechetical kind of way to focus on the doctrine of the church in reading and writing. That's the main thing they're doing day by day. And then observing what's going on in the church, meeting with pastors one-to-one, observing elders meetings, sitting on membership interviews, being trained in, in biblical counseling by Deepak Reju, one of our associate pastors. So there's some hands-on training, but it's more of a kind of uh, watch and learn, uh, sort of watching everything that's happening, asking critical questions, wrestling with what's going on in the sort of day-to-day life of the church. So it's not as practical and hands-on as, as uh, a lot of churches, uh, things that churches do, which are great. So we don't really have like a preaching practicum part of it, uh, although the interns can be involved in some sermon prep type workshops. Um, So yeah, it's meant to sort of say, here's biblical DNA of how you do church. Here's a usable model of people trying to live this stuff out faithfully. And so you can at least see uh, kind of what do you do in this situation when this really difficult marriage is sort of coming to a head? Or what do you do in this situation when COVID hits and there's government regulations and we can't meet as normal in our building and the elders are wrestling with all these hard things? What biblical principles are informing our decisions and how are we trying mm. to care for care for the flock and keep everybody unified? Um, so it's, it's trying to sort of imprint a biblical ecclesiology. And it's, so it's full time. It's only five months. Uh, and people come from a variety of situations and go out into a variety of situations. Mm, yeah. yeah. So so why do you think it is then that the internship is structured that way where you're kind of, seems like you're saying a lot of it is just sort of let's watch, let's learn, let's read and study specifically on issues of ecclesiology rather than maybe some of the things that you might think of a pastoral internship including. Um, not that it doesn't include some of those things. Is there something behind that that, you know, people on average, generally aren't seeing some of these basic ecclesiological dynamics at play in their own churches? That's a good question. And it depends sort of which denominational stream you're talking about. Uh, Presbyterians have their own ways of sort of training and replicating these things. I mean, we're convictional Baptists. Uh, Even among Baptists, there's some diversity in terms of how these things would be understood. Historically, Baptists are committed congregationalists. We are too. Um, yeah, but I think so. There's there's not a total agreement uh, among Baptists today about these things. So you won't hear the same thing from everybody. So I think there's there's biblical conversations worth having, biblical convictions worth advocating for. Uh, but also, it's it's the kind of stuff that it's harder to get the picture if you're just getting it from a book. It's like trying to read a blueprint and imagine the finished building in your head, uh, mm, as yeah. opposed to as opposed to living in the building and then looking at the blueprint to say, okay, here's the dimensions, and you just get a whole different kind of knowledge from living in the building and then comparing blueprint to reality. Mm. So, it's it's trying to kind of say, look, uh, here's the anatomy textbook. 
of a church body, so to speak, to pick the body metaphor. Here's an anatomy textbook, and here you're going around with the doctors on their rounds to actually watch the surgery and see the consultation and see the prescription and diagnosis. Uh, because we see a little bit of a hole still. I mean, yeah, it's the kind of thing that even a seminary is not as well set up to teach. Um, and when you when you look not only in the abstract at biblical qualifications for eldership, say, or, you know, Jesus saying, tell it to the church when it's a matter of church discipline. What does that mean? What does that look like? How much do you say? Who says it? Uh, yeah, there's you, you, you can get uh, sort of deeper convictions that are more stress tested by focusing intensely on these things and seeing them applied. Mm, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned seminaries there, and I want to come back to that kind of the question of how seminaries fit into the whole idea, the whole process of a guy uh, discerning a desire to be in some kind of vocational ministry position and then pursuing that desire. Um, but before we get to that, uh, kind of speaking about the process of becoming a pastor, you write that your goal with your new book uh, is to, quote, persuade you to set aside the language of calling which I, I venture to say is probably the dominant way that we often talk about this issue, to put aside that language of calling and replace it with aspiration. Instead of saying, I'm called to ministry, say, I aspire to be a pastor. So help us understand that. Why are you trying to do that? Why are you trying to push for that different language? Sure. Yeah, there's a few different reasons, and you're right. This is one of the book's sort of key theses, and it sets the framework for the book. Um so a couple things to say about calling. One is that I think often it is uh, it leads to unhelpful, counterproductive, sometimes even irresponsible ways of looking at what it means to be qualified to be a pastor. If it's fundamentally a subjective sense of I want to do this, I think God wants me to do this, I enjoy doing this, I feel a sort of driving sense and urgency, that can sort of trump or override all sorts of other considerations to the contrary, like, well, what do people actually think about your preaching? Uh, if you're married, what does your wife think about this whole business? Uh, how do people respond to your public teaching, personal ministry, all kinds of stuff? How, how, how godly are you? Are there any glaring sins in your life that would disqualify you from ministry? Take a look at those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, and you tell me if you meet them. Um, the calling language can sort of short circuit all of that. God called me. I know it. That settles it. Someone better hire me. And, and frankly, at least in Southern Baptist circles I've come from and gone to seminary in and the sort of waters I tend to swim in, as well as broader, yeah, other, other sort of church streams, I do think that's a live problem. And when mm. I talk to brothers, you know, who are in seminary now or in seminary towns, they're like, yeah, what you're talking about is widespread and, and is, is problematic. Now, there is a more responsible way to use calling language, which is, which is what a lot of folks, especially more reformed folks do. They talk about an internal call and an external call. And I basically know what they mean and I basically agree with it. There, there is a sort of constraining internal sense of I really want to do this, but then it has to be objectively recognized. I, I get what people mean by that. I, I kind of basically agree, except I still don't love that language of calling because it's saying sort of this is from God. I know this is from God. I kind of have to know it's from God uh, before I even, you know, might take some practical steps toward this. So just to just to do a little detour on that really quick, I don't know if Kevin uh, would agree with me 100% on getting rid of calling language, but Kevin DeYoung, for instance, wrote this really helpful piece. He and I chatted about it a little bit. He wrote this really helpful piece criticizing Spurgeon because mm. Spurgeon has this famous line in lectures to my students. It's basically, if you can go do anything else besides being a pastor, 
after, get out and go do it. You know, you have to be so sold out, so committed, not a doubt in your mind, go be a grocer, go be a banker, get out of here. And Kevin was arguing, and I pick up this argument in the book, that that's an unwarranted, unjustifiable standard. What if you could contentedly do other things because God's given you other skills and abilities, but you really want to be a pastor the most, and you're affirmed and qualified in that? So I think even a more responsible internal call, external call, still has some unhelpful tendencies. I would also point out that I just don't see any hard biblical evidence for it. Uh, yeah, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, but that's a unique redemptive historical office uh, speaking to him audibly uh, that is just not quite the same way he deals with us today in regular means of grace, regular church offices. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's any positive biblical support that mandates it. Now, of course, we can use a non-biblical word to talk about a biblical reality. Okay, it's still my preference just to stick with aspiration. And here's, here's a couple reasons why. Uh, One reason is that it is explicitly biblical. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, So it's right there in 1 Timothy 3, which correlates with 1 Peter 5, where it talks about an elder needing to serve, not under compulsion, but willingly. So that desire is important. That desire is a prerequisite. Uh, But the sense of desiring the work, desiring the office, it recognizes Uh, Number one, you want it. Number two, you're not really sure yet if you're qualified or cut out for it. It at least is sort of structurally, it leaves, it it more naturally fits with a sense of, well, I'd like to do this, but I don't know if I measure up yet. That's what aspiration is. Aspiration is about wanting to become a certain kind of person. Um, And so I think it's also, and I think you use this language specifically, did you talk about aspiring to the office of elder and, and the issue of eldership in particular? I can't remember. No, that that's another thing I wanted to dig into is how much of this these uh, issues that you're seeing with the language and even the mindset behind the language that often accompanies guys who are desiring to be in pastoral ministry is tied up in arguably unbiblical or slightly skewed understandings of church leadership, specifically the distinction between elders and pastors. Yeah, that's right. So obviously, you know, there are different ways this plays out in different denominations, church traditions. But if you just look at scripture, uh, the three terms that are used for the pastoral office in the New Testament interchangeably refer to the same role. So Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to him in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He says the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. That's the Greek word we also translate bishops, which uh, also shows up in the, in the pastoral epistles. They're called elders, the Holy Spirit made them overseers, and the work they're to do, to care for, well, it's from the Greek word for shepherding, which is where we get the noun form as pastor. They're elders who were appointed as overseers who do the work of pastors. Hmm. Uh, And so it's all the same thing. And uh, practically speaking, of course, there are functional differences between it being full-time or not, uh, it being your, your, your job or not. But I think it's important to recognize elder is the spiritual office of overseer, uh, of teacher, of example, of working together, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, to direct the affairs of the church. And I think um, the, the higher your view of eldership, and I think there should be a high view of eldership, that elders are apt to teach. Uh, they're giving instruction in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict it, according to Titus 1.9, uh, that elders are setting an example. Hebrews uses the word leaders, but I think it's referring to the same office. Uh, you're to imitate their example. They watch over you as those who will give an account. The higher your view of eldership, in one sense, the more pressure it takes off of this whole question of calling, aspiration, everything— 
because you can aspire to the office. You can grow in the qualifications and the work of the office. You can just start doing some of the work uh, in an informal sense, discipling, counseling, teaching in informal contexts. Um, and you can aspire to that office. And it's kind of a secondary question, whether it becomes your job. Mm, yeah. uh, it doesn't have to be, it's a little bit more of a dimmer switch. It's a little bit more of a spectrum. And you can sort of begin aspiring to that, start getting to work, maybe even become an elder, uh, but it's not an all or nothing question. Mm -hmm. So I also think the language of aspiration, especially coupled with a high view of eldership, can relieve some of the pressure of feeling like, oh no, uh, I'm, you know, let's say you're in the middle of a career, you're, you're a chemist and you've been at your job for 10 years and you've got a family to support, but you just are teaching the Bible more and wanted to be doing more of it. And, you know, maybe a guy like that does become a senior pastor, but it's not all or nothing. Uh, maybe he should start by aspiring to eldership and seeing where the Lord takes him. Because mm -hmm, that, that's not a lesser form of shepherding. No, I mean, all of our elders are pastors. Uh, we all weigh in on pastoral matters. We all counsel. We all teach. We all help in matters of church discipline. The full-time pastors like myself lose votes all the time. Uh, to, to other brothers, you know, we, we lose votes. It's the elders as a whole who are shepherding. Yeah. Uh, and we try to make sure to hold up uh, all the elders of the church in the eyes of the congregation. These are all your pastors. Hmm. So, so it seems a little ironic to me, though, that as I think about the way that often lay elders are installed and identified, it seems to fit this model of aspiring. You sort of, there's a mindset of, hey, you want to serve the church, you want to teach, you want to lead, that's great. We want to go through a process of making sure that's a good fit, making sure that you meet the qualifications, and, and they are never under the, uh, they seem less likely to be assuming that, yeah, this is what I'm called to do, and I'm just going to, I'm going to do it no matter what. Whereas, ironically, it sound, it seems like sometimes it's more of the vocational senior pastor, full-time pastor uh, types who are the ones who maybe need this reminder that uh, it's not necessarily this divine call that they can ascertain and then sort of sort of declare uh, as they yeah, and and I I don't want to totally get rid of uh, the importance of a serious and well considered desire. Uh, you know, particularly if it's your job, you do get you know you are now vocationally dependent on faithfully shepherding people and and remaining faithful to those biblical qualifications and dealing day by day with all those challenges of pastoring uh, in a way that is is practically different uh, from someone whose job doesn't depend on it. So I don't want to get rid of all kind of practical distinctions or totally downplay the subjective side of it. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think one way that a lot of pastors could serve aspiring ministers more uh, would be to hold up the office of elder and use it as a kind of mirror. Okay, you you seem like you're interested in, in, in kind of serving and helping out in church. Well, have you ever thought about being an elder? If you're, you know, why wouldn't you be an elder five, ten years from now? You know, give me, let's put, let's put the burden of proof on you, right? And I think, so I think it is part of a mindset of wanting to raise up leaders, not viewing it as a sort of zero-sum game where you need to sort of keep control or, or have the biggest share of the pie. Mm. Um, yeah, I want to be careful not to downplay the, the subjective side totally, but I think, I think I hear what you're saying. I, I do think there can be, um, I think we can have an overly mystical view of what it means to be a pastor. Let's put it like yeah. that. Yeah. So then where do seminaries fit into this whole conversation? Uh, it seems to me that in my experience talking with guys who are in seminary, um, they often enter school for the express purpose of becoming a vocational pastor. That's maybe the dominant kind of goal in that, even if they don't have a church that is 
uh, has a kind of affirmed that desire or called them to a role like that, they sort of go in even probably assuming I'm not going to be pastoring in my home church, the church I grew up in or the church I'm at right now. It's going to be some other church I don't even know about yet. So how does that fit into the way you're viewing uh, the path to being a pastor? Sure, yeah. I mean, practically, it probably means I'm giving a much smaller role to seminaries than a lot of guys might expect. Uh, I think when the seminaries are at their best, they recognize the limited role they're playing. And they're saying, look, churches fundamentally form pastors. We equip them with a certain toolkit and help form them in a more intensive way. Uh, But the best seminaries, when they're at their best, are saying, churches form pastors. We're really an assist. Uh, So I think Mm -hmm. I'm agreeing with seminaries about that. Uh, But yeah, I think a lot of men going to seminary might have an expectation. Hey, if I do this credential, if I accomplish this degree, uh, poof, I'm qualified to be a pastor. Uh, And that's just not necessarily the case. Seminary can be greatly helpful. You can learn a ton. I'm glad I have uh, a couple of seminary degrees. I'm thankful for those. Um, But fundamentally, you're shaped to be a pastor in the context of the church. You grow through ministering to the church. Ultimately, you're, you're fundamentally vetted by the church. And I think some churches are very responsible. We, we try to be very responsible, willing to have hard conversations, uh, willing to say no, whether, whether to affirming someone to go to seminary, uh, or even if we would sort of permit it, uh, maybe not getting fully behind them just because we're, oh, okay, we, we could see how you might want to go do that. We're not going to stand in your way, but we're not necessarily going to throw the full weight of our support behind you. Uh, I think the more churches take an active oversight role in those aspiring brothers' lives, uh, the better served they'll be and the better a sense they'll have of what seminary can and can't do. Mm. Yeah, because that gets to another challenge that I've heard from seminary grads is that they've just spent all this time and all this money getting a, a great theological and even pastoral education, uh, but that kind of locks them in to finding a full-time paid pastoral job no matter no matter what, since they don't really have uh, any other quote-unquote marketable skills. So, so what would you say to, to guys who are considering seminary and, and maybe feel a desire to do that, um, but yeah, want to make sure that they're, they're starting that with a, a biblical view, though, of uh, what actually qualifies them for ministry and how to think about even their long-term you know, financial uh, financial life and their family's life um, by going to seminary? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a tough question because everybody's situation varies. Uh, it's just there's so many different individual variables in everybody's life. Um, you know, I wasn't going to make much money as a jazz musician anyways. Uh, <laughs> and I would have had a very strange lifestyle. And and I knew, from for me, a big practical decision point was, I need to be fully committed to this. If I'm really going to pursue a career in performing and composing and teaching and all the stuff that musicians do, uh, I better be fully committed 100%. Um, so I, I, it was kind of a crossroads for me. Like, well, there seems like enough fruit, enough confirmation, enough people telling me they benefit from my preaching, enough kind of church oversight saying, yeah, we support this, um, that I sort of put all my eggs into the ministry basket. Even though it was several years of training and preparation and working in different areas before becoming a full-time pastor. So I kind of threw all my eggs into that basket, even at a very young age. And I know brothers who have done that and have been very faithful. And yeah, uh, so it just it just it varies so much. I think I yeah, it depends 
I wouldn't want a, yeah, I, I have a tough time even distilling principles because I'm just thinking of individual brothers I know who are mm. at different places in that and have maybe had, you know, some desire but have stayed in their job or have left the job or have gone back to the job or, mm. yeah, it a lot depends on opportunity cost. Are you single? Are you married with five kids? Are you talking about moving? Who pays for tuition? Uh, do you have a reasonable prospect of studying full-time or close to full-time? Or are you, I mean, just, especially with online seminary these days, it's just such a kind of, um, there's a million and one settings mm. from, from zero to a hundred that, yeah, every case is different. Yeah. How important would you say it, it would be for a guy who's considering seminary to have a church behind him sort of telling him, yes, we think you should do that. We think you have potential to be an elder, to be a pastor someday. Or uh, does a guy need to make sure he has that before he would go pursue seminary? Yeah, the, the, as a general rule, I would say very important. As a general rule, I'd say let your church set your pace. Uh, as a general rule, I'd want to say, yeah, kind of settle in whatever is the fullest extent your church will get behind anybody. Uh, labor to serve in the church in such a way that they're willing to look at you and say, yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get behind you as much as we get behind anybody. Um, there's lots of exceptions and qualifications to that. What if it's a church that is not really actively invested in raising up pastors? What if it's a pastor who has a more territorial attitude, which sadly happens sometimes where he can feel threatened by a really hungry, aspiring guy, uh, as opposed to just rejoicing in that, wanting to equip him and send him out. So general rule, very important. And I would normally counsel that. Uh, there are qualifications and no pastor is infallible. Uh, no pastor can perfectly evaluate this man's gifts, this man's character. Yeah. So we, we mm. pastors also just need to be aware of the limits of our own judgment. Yeah, yeah. So then speak to that. What would be um, some advice for a pastor who who uh, is shepherding a church and wants to help raise up guys uh, to be elders, wants to to give them good uh, direction on that and, and, and lead them well? What does it look like to, to help guys discern uh, what path they should take? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think one, I'll put one practical thing out there and then sort of uh, view it from a few steps. One practical thing I think is multiply teaching opportunities that are available in your church. So if you don't have adult Sunday school, a great reason to have it is because it requires you to have more teachers. You now have teaching slots you have to fill. Who's qualified to teach them? Who can do that? Who wants to do that? Uh, or if you only have one service, what about starting a kind of prayer service on Sunday night, maybe with a short devotional, which is what we have. Um, okay, if, if, if it's a short devotional slot every week, somebody's got to do it. Um, and so we constantly have first-time teachers in our adult Sunday school classes, in our Sunday evening devotional. Uh, it creates a need and sort of a conveyor belt. And, you know, you want to equip them a little bit on the front end. You want to help them as they do it. I mean, I frequently, I'll have a first-time Sunday evening preacher right here in my office uh, go through their devotional ahead of time. And maybe myself and another staff member will listen to it, give them feedback ahead of time. Hopefully that helps with their confidence and encouragement. Uh, hopefully it prepares them even a little bit better. And uh, then they go off and do it. And then we have a service review where they get feedback from all the pastoral staff and interns. Um, so even just one little thing like multiplying teaching opportunities and then working to sort of equip in advance help in the process, give feedback after, that starts to create a kind of ecosystem. It starts to create a kind of flywheel spinning of opportunities for guys to grow and to take on more and more pastoral type work. 
Uh, and there's other there's other areas you can do that, but that's a pretty obvious one, especially because the one really distinctive elder qualification, apart from just exemplary character, is ability to teach. And especially also because uh, in addition to it being the most distinctive competence qualification, it also seems to be tied, that is ability to teach, seems to be tied in the New Testament to the main reason or the most prominent reason why someone would be set aside full-time to serve the church. It's not the only legitimate reason to, to pay somebody for full-time Christian work, but Galatians 6, 6, the one who has taught the word should share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, or again, uh, special honor, including remuneration in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, is tied to uh, those who uh, uh, rule well as elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Hmm. So, so think, does, that, yeah. does, that, does that emphasis on teaching, apt to teach being that language, uh, does that only refer to preaching? I, I could I could imagine there's some guys who who would say, "Man, I do not think I'm cut out. I don't find a joy in preaching formally to a big group of people, but I love sitting down one on one or one on a small group and teaching guys, teaching people through the Bible or teaching doctrine." Would that also be uh, covered in that qualification? Excellent question. I think absolutely. I think uh, there's a, a lot of different formats that can take place in, like you mentioned, even from sitting down one-to-one -one with somebody through more small group teaching, maybe a Sunday school class that might have a little bit more, you know, we give full manuscripts, so there's less preparation involved. They're just meant to sort of internalize the material. Um, yeah, it does not, it's not just the kind of, oh man, uh, a 40-minute sermon on a Sunday morning and, and everybody's there and this is the kind of main meal for the week and the pressure feels like it's a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I can well understand how a brother who is qualified in a 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.9 type of sense doesn't necessarily feel cut out at that level for that type mm. of pressure, that type yeah. of context. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great point. Apt to teach is much broader than preaching. Sure, sure. So you've spoken to pastors a little bit. Speak to the guy who who does indeed inspire, aspire to be an elder, uh, one of the things that you encourage him to do is to, quote, aim to be mistaken for an elder before you are appointed as an elder. Unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, I think the main thing I would say to unpack that statement is to cultivate the kind of character where you have an evident spiritual maturity, an evident likeness to Jesus, um, and, and a consistency of character where that's across the board and you're trying to work on besetting sins and, and humbly get feedback about ways you need to grow as a Christian. Um, and then secondly, uh, taking spiritual initiative in people's lives. Uh, so one brother I would just positively gossip about who I work with very closely. His name is Jonathan Kiesling. He came through our internship. He serves us as a pastoral assistant. Uh, which is a kind of admin a training role for a guy who aspires to be a pastor. We recently appointed him as an elder, and uh, ju just within the last few weeks. And one of our interns who's just finished up said, from the first moments of, of interacting with Jonathan, he, Jonathan was just caring for him, asking how he's doing spiritually, uh, just kind of shepherding him by the way he related to him. Hmm. And uh, and this intern Barrick said, "Yeah, I I thought I thought well maybe he is an elder. I don't know. Uh, he seems like an elder. Is he? Uh, you yeah. kind of look up look up in the church directory. Wait a minute, is Jonathan an elder? So and he he, he yeah he um he literally mistook Jonathan for an elder. Uh, and then he just he was just sharing this with us as a staff. And he said, yeah, it just made perfect sense. It was so sweet to get to see the congregation. The elders nominated him. The congregation approved him. So hmm. I think it's 
I think it's a, a mixture of character and then basically spiritual initiative. How can you try to help people grow as a Christian just by the kind of conversations you have with them, the way you try to support them? Do you share scripture with them? When they, you know, can, can they bring you a problem and you genuinely help them? And one of the ways you're helping them is by pointing them to God's word. Hmm, yeah, that, that fits in with something you say in your book. You talk about how uh, the church, in a sense, identifies and calls men to become to be elders, to be shepherds in that congregation. But you kind of make some a little aside that in, in in some sense the church sort of just identifies those who are called to that or are are qualified to be elders. Can you unpack that? Do you know what I'm referring to? And do you mean is it kind of the interplay between the elders and the congregation? Or I, I think I think you were making the point more that the church is not necessarily instrumental in um, qualifying someone to be an elder, that they are more recognizing qualification that already exists, that maybe is already yeah. even evidenced in how that person is acting. Sure. Yeah, that's right. I mean, theoretically, of course, a church can, uh, is able to appoint a man to the office who's not qualified. Um, but the nature of the office is such that you have these character and competence prerequisites that's built into what it is. And so a man really has to be that uh, before being recognized by the church. That's why I like that word, recognizing. Mm. Um, so yeah, it should be a matter of discernment and, uh, it's a really good sign for us when we have members of the congregation kind of volunteering. Oh, have you guys thought about having this guy as an elder? He was really helpful about this. He taught me that, uh, I've really benefited from his work in the church. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not something you can just flip a switch or manufacture or just decide. And I think sometimes in churches, you know, there can be, this is a sincere desire to try to to try to try serve the church well, but I think maybe uninformed by scripture like it should be. There might be other qualifications that substitute, right? Kind of prominence in the community, business experience, life, age, age and life experience, station of life. Now, some of those things could contribute or be secondary factors that help you kind of start looking at somebody. But there has to be that Christ-like character and ability to teach and lead the church. Um, that's just a non-negotiable. Well, uh, Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us and to yeah, to help us perhaps think a little bit more biblically about the path to being a pastor, to the path to being an elder in a church. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. That was Bobby Jameson on the journey to pastoral ministry. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Path to Being a Pastor, a guide for the aspiring, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.